This season of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Sweaty Betty. Now, I love going to spin class. I love the music. I love the sweat. I love the fact that it makes me feel I've been in a motivational nightclub. And there is one garment that I will always wear at every single class, and that is Sweaty Betty's Zero Gravity Leggings. It feels like they've been specifically made for spin class. I felt completely awesome in them. They feel smooth and buttery, almost like a second skin. I feel like the fabric they're made from really hugged my muscles without feeling constricted. I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sweaty Betty. And so they're offering 20% off their products with the code HOWTOFAIL. Thank you very much to Sweaty Betty. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest this week is someone who needs several descriptions. She is a TV and radio presenter, starting out in live television at the age of 15 and going on to front primetime shows, including Children in Need, Radio One's chart show, and to occupy a regular slot as quiz captain on Celebrity Juice. She is also the author of best-selling books, has produced her own clothing ranges, and has even climbed Kilimanjaro for charity. But most importantly for our purposes, she is a hugely successful podcaster. In her podcast, Happy Place, she interviews inspiring individuals with her trademark empathy and insight and asks them how to be content in this sometimes confusing world. She recently turned it into a festival with a lineup of brilliant speakers, including Russell Brand and Dame Kelly Holmes. Along the way, she has been open about her own mental health, talking about her experiences with panic attacks and anxiety in a way that has made the rest of us feel less alone and more understood. So much has happened, she said in an interview earlier this year, all for the better. Although there have been moments that have been incredibly dark and low, all of it feels absolutely right in a way. She is, of course, Fern Cotton. Fern, it is such a pleasure to welcome you on to How to Fail. I'm so happy to be on and that was much less cringy than I thought it would be sat here listening to you talk about me. It was actually... Very lovely. Well, it's your gorgeous voice. (laughs) It's all the facts. It's the facts. And when I started doing How to Fail, you were one of my dream guests. And I think it's because you really blazed the trail for podcasters like me. And I just want to thank you for that and for Happy Place, because I think it's a momentous achievement what you've done. Well, it was a total happy accident. So I can take some credit, but really it's the people that have you know, listened and got involved in the conversation and the guests that I've had on, you know, they've been so open and incredible in wanting to share their stories. So I play a small part in something that is a joy to create. How did you start doing the podcast? What was the impetus behind it? 
I guess after I'd written Happy and seen this bizarre, unexpected reaction that I honestly thought that book would go onto the radar and that it would just be kind of a nice side project and it's turned into this, you know, beautiful monster. And sometimes, as much as I love radio, you feel confined to having to talk about, you know, certain things and and there are certain things that aren't appropriate to talk about. And I, I love the medium of radio and this just felt like kind of radio with an after party attached to it like you could just go for it and talk about whatever you wanted and I that felt liberating so I did a tester just chatting to my mate Zephyr who is this amazing friend who's a yoga teacher but has had a very tough time throughout her life and I knew she'd be willing to be open and very honest and that ended up in the first series because we just thought you know what that was just a really nice conversation let's see what people think and it snowballed from there. I mentioned in the introduction that you have been open about your mental health, which again is an incredibly generous thing for you to do. Have you always been someone who can speak the truth openly? Are you someone who kind of connects on a deep level with the person that you meet on the bus? Yes and no. So yes, like me, regular Fern in reality, yes, I don't like small talk, I kind of can't be asked. It's why I hate going to parties because it would be very weird to just go in deep at a party. I love going for like a cup of tea with someone and really like chatting it out. And, and I guess I always have been like that. And my mum is very much like that. She can't do small talk at all. She is straight to the jugular. But in my working life and in that sort of capacity, no. I don't think I felt comfortable until quite recently. So I did keep it fluffy and light and appropriate to the job that I was doing which was fun sometimes frustrating but very much you know still fun I got to interview thousands of amazing bands and artists that I love and you'd never necessarily go that deep but you'd have a great time but I've now just moved the real me into the sort of work portion of my life so I feel really comfortable, luckily in this space of doing podcasts and with the continued sort of writing, that I can just be me. And what's the reaction been like with people, for instance, on the street? Because you are, in a conventional sense, famous Mm. and your face is very recognisable. Has the attitude of strangers shifted? Mm, Yeah, I think I've sort of witnessed a strange reaction from the age of 15 to now 38, where you know, first of all, I'd get kids coming up with their mum and the mum would go, she says you're off the telly, I don't know who you are. And I'd go, oh, thank you. Hi, do you want a picture? And it'd be quite confrontational and strange. And then, there, you know, there was the phase where I was doing Top of the Pops or radio, whatever, and, and people just, you know, are being very sweet and kind and have listened to the radio show. And now, more often than not, it's people wanting to have a hug you know, people wanting to share their story, people wanting to tell me something about themselves. And it's not just a spectacle of there's someone off the TV. It's a bit deeper than that. It's, you know, they've they've listened to the podcast or they've read a book and they want to chat and they want to share their story. And, and I am massively grateful, you know, every time that happens. I've met some lovely people like at the Happy Place Festival this year and or even just when I'm walking up and doing the school run. It's kind of weird and wonderful every time it happens. I'm going to get onto your failures in a minute, but do you have strategies in place for dealing with that? Because as much as it is a privilege and you're so grateful for it and it's a beautiful thing, I imagine that a lot of people also share their stories of pain with you. And that 
can be quite hard to assimilate. Yeah, it, I, you know what? I really noticed it this year because, say, for example, at the Happy Place Festival, we had 6,000 people in London and 5,500 people in Manchester. And it was beautiful. You know, I, I walked around as much as I could to meet as many revelers as I could. And it was pretty much that all weekend, people wanting to tell me why they had come along, what their story was, the pain they'd suffered, what a certain talk they'd just listened to and, you know, how that had impacted them. And it was pretty heavy and I'd really underestimated that. I just thought I'd walk around and have, you know, like high high high-fiving everyone. And actually it was this really amazing deep connection with a lot of people. And, you know, one thing I'm really careful to do is never give any advice because who the hell am I? That's not my place. I'm there to listen and to encourage people for sure, but not to give advice. And I always make sure if I've got something like that, which is quite a unique situation, I'm only going to do it, you know, once every year, that the week afterwards is very, very normal. And I am at home and I'm with my children and I'm not doing anything worky or weird. It's just me getting grounded, going for runs, playing Sylvalian families with my daughter, just like regular stuff, because I had to really like process all of those stories and thoughts and feelings. And, you know, it also, of course, brings up a lot for you personally, if there are certain stories that resonate with you. So yeah, it was gorgeous and it was heavy. And I I guess next year I'll go into that more educated from experiencing it and we'll be able to probably recover slightly quicker afterwards. That's 11,000 people. Mm. I've just done the maths for... Well done, Elizabeth. <laughs> That's really incredible and you should be so proud of yourself. Oh, I just, you've got to come next year. I'd love you to do a talk love or something. To. I've said it on mic so you kind of have to yeah. now. But, um, but it was really special and again, I'd sort of underestimated it. I just thought people would come, listen to the talks, do a bit of yoga. But it was this real sense of community and loads of people turned up on their own. They didn't go in a group of friends. They didn't bring their partner or their best mate. They just came on their own. By the end, you know, everyone was mixing and chatting and it was just, oh, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It was really gorgeous. I was under a lot of pressure, but for a very good reason. You talked earlier on about when you were 15 and people would come up to you in the street and your first failure is around that age. Mm. And you say that you didn't recognise it as a failure at the time, but there are reasons that you want to discuss it. And that's that you didn't get most of your GCSEs. Mm. So what was happening? Because I'm imagining you weren't at school that much. Yeah, it was a complicated time in a sense. I just saw it all as fun. This was like not a bad period of my life at all. I had had this extremely lucky situation. So the backstory being, I come from a very regular working class family in the suburbs of London and I went to a regular state school and then I lived for my drama classes at the weekend and my dance classes and after school I would go as well. And it was just a local dance and drama club in a church hall around the corner from my house. But it was my everything. And I was and still am to some extent a big dreamer. So I was daydreaming constantly about all these amazing acting jobs I was going to get and how I would end up with Leonardo DiCaprio in Hollywood. And, you know, I was constantly dreaming. So school just seemed a little bit obsolete in all of that, which is not something I wouldn't necessarily promote to younger people, but that was how I felt. And I was probably working, I'd say at this point, two to three days a week. And then I would do school the other days. And I didn't really care when I was there much. I had a great group of friends and it was brilliant. 
slightly bullied from the people in the year above me because you're an odd child if you're on TV at school. You stick out like a sore thumb. As much as I didn't really want to be there because of that, I didn't really care because I was doing what I loved. And I couldn't believe that I'd sort of been plucked from obscurity to do this amazing job that was just so fun and so far removed from the first 15 years of my life where I hadn't seen anything like that. So my GCSEs were not part of the plan, but I did a few of them. I missed a couple because I was filming and I didn't resit them. I got good grades in three of them because I really enjoyed those subjects and the rest I just kind of flunked. And although at the time I didn't see it as a failure, I think later down the line, I saw it as this kind of social expectation and also kind of like key to a door of this club I wasn't involved in, like the smart kids, Mm -hmm. the smart gang, or my God, the insecurity I have sometimes still around people that went to university or who, you know, have amazing masters. If I get interviewed by journalists, I think have been to a great, you know, Oxbridge or whatever. I feel such paranoia because I fucked up at school massively. So although at the time I didn't see it as a failure, I think it affected me much later down the line. And can I ask you, because at the age of 15, you were doing live television, Mm. which is routinely described as the most terrifying facet of Mm. broadcasting. And you're very well known for being very good at it. But at that age, were you scared of it or nervous? Or did you just not know (laughs) any Um, difference? I'm much more nervous now than I was then. I think as a kid, you're just so gung-ho about everything. Like, let's just give it a try. I was the ultimate risk taker. I still am. I'm a big risk taker. I really believe in taking risks, which means you're definitely going to fail. But at that point, I just saw it all as this wild fun. I just couldn't believe that I was getting to do it. I dreamt about it so often for so long that to then finally be doing the job that I wanted to do or some I wanted to be an actress but you know I was doing something in that world was just so exciting to me I kind of didn't care so you know I didn't have sleepless nights or anything like that I just used to turn up give it my best smile loads there was no social media so I had no idea about what anyone thought of me and I went home back to my family normal life and hung out with my regular school friends you know I didn't have a showbiz life at 15 I had a regular life, but a really cool job. But the fear wasn't there. And what did your parents think when you failed your GCSEs? Luckily, my parents are very liberal and chilled and really hardworking. And I think that's always been the thing that they will fundamentally root back to is do me and my brother work hard at what we really love and what we want to do. And if we are, then great. It doesn't matter what what it is. So, you know, my parents, I only realised recently because I had this chat with my dad and I'd never understood what they were going through at that time. I just thought, I, I wasn't thinking. I was just having a great time. But my dad used to have to like go to the local town hall, get all these documents signed so I could be signed out of school and then go off filming and have chaperones and all this sort of stuff. And for them, they were both working. My dad was a sign writer until recently for his whole life. My mum was working four different jobs, trying to, you know, keep everything going. And they just let me get on with it. And they knew how desperately I wanted to do it. They recognised that I was very strong-willed from a really young age. And they've, you know, told me about that again more recently, that... I was slightly unusual as a child and they kind of recognised that. And I'm really lucky that they gave me the space to just do it and try. And not all parents would have allowed that. 
Do you feel that mainstream schools don't really allow that as well? Do you feel like they should be more flexible in terms of what they teach? The thing that I really passionately believe schools need to be more up on is soft skills. And it's something that I I work with the Prince's Trust on because I'm an ambassador for the Prince's Trust and it's a focus of theirs. You know, soft skills in life can get you really far. If you work out what you want to do, and I'm talking about, you know, working as a team, either as a team leader or being in a team, being polite, being kind, being a good communicator, making eye contact, having good etiquette, all of these things that will seriously serve you well in life are completely abandoned for a very sort of old school, archaic method of learning. And there's still obviously room for all of those things, especially if you want to be a teacher, a scientist, a doctor, whatever. But if you don't, you are definitely made to feel like a failure. And I was told in all of my, you know, you have to do those like interviews with a careers advisor. And I would give them this long dreamy list of things I wanted to do. And they would always come back going, "Um, you need to work with children. That's what you should do. Work in a school or whatever. And I was like, I don't want to do that. You're not listening to what I'm saying. And there was no other option. And I had teachers say to me, look, good luck, but this is not going to work out for you. So knuckle down and do your studies. And I will try and reach a good balance with my own kids that they work hard at school, but also allow them a space to try other things if that doesn't fit them. I had one of those aptitude tests and it told me I should be a building society advisor. What went wrong, Elizabeth? I know, what exactly. went wrong? Didn't go according to plan, did it, Fern? I failed. You failed. failed terribly there. But do you, because you see it, you've got one child in school now. Yes. Is it, do you think school is just highly pressurised? Oh my God, way more so than when I was there. I don't think I would have gotten away with how I was educated and worked at 15 today in schools. I've got two teenage stepchildren, one doing his last year of A-levels and my stepdaughter is 14. So she's approaching all of her big exams. I mean, the pressure is crazy. This is why I'm so fascinated in the subject you talk about. I think we're getting worse at failure. There's more pressure. There's much less room to fail and learn from it. And it just seems sort of suffocating for kids these days. And I, and I do think it's really worrying because I'm sure there's loads of kids out there today under that pressure that don't feel like the academic world is their world. And that's a terrifying place to be at if that's the case. So I think schools are getting better at it in a sense that they do encourage the arts, sport, music a little more than when I was at school. But I do think the pressure to have, you know, these beautiful straight A's or are they marking them with numbers now? I don't know what the hell it is. I'm so old. But the pressure to get that, that supposedly means you're then going to do well in life, like that isn't an equation that works out. I know people that got straight A's, went to university, got master's and then floated around for years going, what the fuck am I doing with my life after? And then friends who did no further education and have the dream job they lusted after forever. So we do need to look at how we communicate that to children and that there are other options for sure. You said there that you were a risk taker. Mm. And I think that some people who know your particular journey will be surprised by that because you have spoken courageously and honestly in the past about anxiety and having panic attacks Mm. so some people I think would think but then why would you take risks Mm. but tell us why you think it's important okay first of all I am quite a strange fish in many ways it's weird because sometimes I'm taking a risk to alleviate myself from the anxiety that I'm feeling so some examples 
that you may have witnessed me leaving Radio One, like the peak of my career there when I was, you know, running the live lounge and had this amazing time slot and was interviewing all these amazing people every day. Not a single person said to me, good choice, good on you, great, great idea. Everyone was like, ah, what? I don't get it. Why are you leaving? Again, bar my parents who are very cool about stuff like that. And I left Celebrity Juice when it was all going brilliantly. And there was nothing wrong with those jobs or what was going on within them. I just felt like I needed to change and to switch things up. And they, you know, it's always a huge risk for me because I'm self-employed. I've got nothing to fall back on. Mum and dad aren't going to help me out. Do you know what I mean? They've retired. They're chilling out. They don't want to be helping out their 38-year-old daughter. And they couldn't anyway. So, you know, it's a huge amount of risk-taking every time I make a change or leave something. And for my family... But I always lock into that intuition and deep down know it's right. And sometimes that will dissipate a certain anxiety that was there. And I hadn't realized what the root cause was or, you know, I'm not great at sleep sometimes. And making a big change like that will just stop that in its tracks and I'll go back into beautiful REM sleep. So I guess it's about following your gut. But yes, I am big on risk taking. That's so interesting because you're so right that it's in those moments that you grow Mm. that shaking things up can be so terrifying and yet there's something putting you to do that. I can't ignore it. Like I've tried, but then I become obsessive thinking about things. You know, when I was leaving Radio 1, I obsessed about it for about six months and I couldn't even articulate why I needed to leave. I just knew it was time and I wanted to learn and shake things up and try new things. And I just thought, I want chapters in life rather than one long career of the same thing. I want there to be like, oh, that was that chapter. And then I went on and there was another chapter. And luckily that's accidentally happened in a way I had not imagined. Mm. One chapter of your life. See, seamless link there, Fern. Seamless. (laughs) She's so good. She's so good. Learned it all from you. Shesh. So one chapter is about when you got engaged Mm. and at 29, that engagement failed. Yes. And there was an element you said in your email to me that was based on the social pressure to have everything sorted by the age Mm. of 30 that made you feel like you'd failed there. Oh, massively, massively. So yeah, before I met my husband, I was engaged to somebody else and we get on perfectly well now and there's no like bad blood. There's nothing bad to say. It was just one of those situations where we'd been together on off for a while, for quite a long time, actually. And there was a wedding venue booked. And I really thought I had my future planned naively. Like we all try and control things and grab hold of that and think if I map out my future, I'll be safe. I won't have to deal with failure, all of those things. And I know you've talked explicitly about this in your own life so beautifully. And of course, life doesn't always pan out that way. So the engagement ended and it was a weird life shakeup that I hadn't really expected. And, you know, looking back at the place I'm at now, I think it was great for everyone. He's happily married to the most lovely lady who I've met a couple of times and adore. They have a baby. You know, I've met my wonderful husband and and I've got two kids and two stepkids. And you can retrospectively see how those social failures aren't really failures because it was just time for you to walk down a different path. But at the time, I felt absolute despair because I had imagined that I would be getting married, having children, and then my 30s would be family time. And that's how it was going to be. And at 
you know, 29, about to turn 30, I panicked. I really, really panicked. And my panic turned into, I just want to be on my own now. I don't want to meet anyone. I am quite happy on my own. I'm not going through that again. And then I met my husband. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that that, so many people respond like that. They try to cut themselves off Mm. and they avoid anything that could make them feel. Yeah, you put a big suit of armour on. You just think, I'm too delicate to go through that again and to invest emotionally and energetically into fixing future plans. I mean, you know, obviously it's been a big learning curve because I do that less so now and I'm a bit freer with how I think about things and I plan a lot less But in my 20s, I tried to plan everything because my career was so wildly out of control often because I was traveling back and forth from the States and juggling lots of jobs and doing really like high octane, scary, crazy things that I tried to have more control over my everyday life. So rigid plans kind of made me feel a bit safer. And I definitely don't do that anymore because I've got kids, so everything's just like chaos. But prior to that, I really had and and taking the wedding out the diary and and all of those plans that had been set in place. Yeah, I definitely felt like a massive failure for sure. Had you bought your dress? I had bought an inexpensive dress that I thought this could work, but I wasn't. And I think that's when I started to realise things were going down the pan. I'd really thought about the venue and then I started to invest less and less into it as we got nearer to it because I could see it was falling apart. Part of me was in massive denial, hence still buying a dress, but I knew it wasn't quite right. So I think I was admitting failure to myself around that point. And then the royal wedding happened between the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and it was such a beautiful thing watching them get married. I mean, I was there doing all the reporting, so I was kind of right outside the palace gates, watching it all take place. And it started to kind of hit home that that wasn't going to happen for me. And it was pretty much straight after that, that it all just imploded. So it was quite a weird, a weird moment. And can I ask, without getting into too many personal Mm. specifics, but earlier you were talking about those instinctive moments where you left Radio 1 or Celebrity Juice. Was it an instinctive moment for you to end the engagement? Is that how it ended? No, I think I've always been much more intuitive with my work than I have in my personal life. And also much better at work than my personal life. Me too, 100%. Isn't it funny? I think so many people will feel the same. They can possibly communicate with more honesty. They can set agendas, take risks. But in our lives, it almost feels, I mean, too chaotic and too precious and too raw to make those really gutsy decisions. So I have always been awful at that. I'm only getting better at that now, like really recently, making better choices within relationships, friendships, you know, just decisions with dynamics in my life. Work's always been a little bit more clear cut for me. And your husband now, Jesse, do you just communicate very plainly to each other? Is that yes. the key? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. And that is great and can be fiery. And I've written about and it's been put into headlines that are obscure and truncated or whatnot. You know, we'll have great old shouting matches about stuff. But the main thing being is we're communicating very honestly about 
how we feel. There's no suppression. There's no hiding things from each other. We deeply feel the need to get everything out in the open. And we can always tell if there's something in the other's head and we will wheedle it out of the other. And it's not always pretty, but we end up being in a better place, a closer place and in in a really healthy relationship. So the engagement imploded in a... Yeah, in a strange way that I, I don't think there was ever any closure for either of us. It just sort of went wrong. And it was one argument in a string of many, which just felt very final. And we both knew, and I don't think either of us, you know, it wasn't one or the other saying it. It just was that there is no more. And that is that is that. Which I guess didn't make it easy because you almost want in that vulnerable place to be able to blame that's the, always the easiest way out of a difficult situation for anybody is to start pointing fingers because you then take the heat off yourself. I don't think either of us felt we could do that. We just knew it wasn't going any further. And that is still a difficult thing to live through for both parties. But at least we didn't walk away blaming the other for everything. It just reached a natural end But it did feel like I was at at an age where it should be progressing and thriving. And it was a bit of a scary time. And do you feel, looking back now, that that relationship happened and ended for some sort of reason? Absolutely. For both of us. I think we could both happily say that. I think you learn so much from being in any partnership, mainly about yourself, you think you're learning about other people and how the world works. You're just learning about yourself and how you react to things and why and how best to communicate. And I came away having learned a lot. I didn't then instantly start acting perfectly in all other relationships. Obviously, I think it just goes on for your whole life. But I certainly walked away having learned a lot about myself I don't really see him that much, but I have bumped into him and his wife recently and they, they've got a wonderful setup and he's doing brilliantly at work and they've got a gorgeous baby and Jesse and I in our home are very settled and we live a really nice, very quiet life here. You know, we keep it really small and quiet and very regular within our home and we're content. And I think you at the time feel like everything's going wrong and to shit and all these plans laid are no longer. But the big thing I've learned in all of the mistakes I've made are that then new doors open. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. If you properly shut doors and you do have to properly shut them, they can't be a tiny bit open so you can peek in and look every now and again. They have to be properly shut. And then other ones that you were not even expecting open up. And I've experienced that in my life, in my work life, that you get new opportunities and and I'm very impatient. So I want to see results now. I want to see, well, what are the new doors? Where where are they? I can't even see them. And I've really had to lock into patience and just having hope, which when you're not religious can be quite hard, but having a little bit of hope that other experiences and learnings and excitement will happen. That's so interesting you say that about properly shutting the doors. So... In terms of breaking up an intimate relationship, are you one of those people who's like, I am not going to speak to my ex. I won't try and find out what they're doing. I know that this is a pre-Instagram age, but so mm, <laughs> you wouldn't be looking at them on Instagram. 
and professionally, like, I need to leave this job for the next... You're that definite about it. Yeah, sometimes I think I've had to be because I think when you leave certain situations, work or personal, it can be so painful to delve back into it. And I've definitely been self-destructive in other ways, but sometimes it's been so painful to do that, that that door has to just close for me to properly move on. And I know that that will make things heal faster. And it's not even about discipline or me being very resilient in those situations. It's just too painful to look. So I can't. And it's been like that, even if I'm honest, with Celebrity Juice, I haven't been able to watch it. I made the decision to leave, but it would be so weird for me to then tune in to watch it because, you know, they're my mates and it's my gang and I'm not there and it might bring up a lot of feelings and might make me feel regret or whatever. Although I know intuitively I made the right decision for where I'm at in my life, why would I put myself through that pain? You need to, in any situation, properly close the door and respect other people's space, respect your space and breathe a little bit, like have breathers, like moments of nothingness where you can process and digest and just be rather than scrambling into the next thing to distract yourself. Just being is important. Are you less of a planner now than Mm. you were when you were planning that first wedding? I plan so little because... I've realised the sort of beauty of not planning and sort of letting go in a sense, because I am naturally a bit of a control freak. But having experienced this sort of weird and wonderful career, this new tangent I've gone off on, sprout out of nowhere, has made me realise how exciting it is to not really plan very much. So all of this stuff that I'm doing, you know, with the podcast, the festivals, I didn't sit one day and plan out all of this stuff, it's just sort of snowballed and I'm going with it and it's really exciting. And I think that can often be the case. I'm not talking about in a work sense, but in life, if we just sort of really let go, loads of cool stuff happens. You know, it could even be like bumping into a very old friend in the street or just something very small that feels really genuinely random and lovely and can take you on another trail of thought or to just think differently about life so yeah I try and also because I've got kids it is so hard to plan stuff because everything's constantly changing and you change your opinion on things and and where they're at development wise so yeah I just try and go with the flow a little bit more you need to clear the space to listen to instinct, I always think, because mm. there's so much white noise that otherwise drowns that so small voice out. much. There's so much exterior noise for all of us. And unless you have those gaps and those breathers, you don't stand a chance. You'll be making decisions based on what everyone else thinks. And it can only come from you because it's your life at the end of the day. So talking about other people's opinions of you and this kind of expectation brings us on to your third failure. Mm. And I'm extremely honoured that you are going to talk about this. And I think it's going to speak to a great many people. And it's about a failure. You put it as a failure to be yourself for most of your 20s. Because in your teens, you'd been vividly you. I imagine because you weren't as aware Mm. of what you were doing and you were just enjoying it for what it was. Yeah. And then what happened in your 20s? Well, yeah, so I'd had that like lovely period of being a teenager on the TV. And there was a small element of me going, 
oh my God, I don't really look like all of these pop stars that are coming on here. And they all seem to be really coping very well with all their confidence levels in this weird world. But but I still kind of was quite naive and just went with it. But then in my 20s, sort of at 19, I guess, I started doing Top of the Pops. And in my 20s, and I started on the radio. So I was doing like proper big TV stuff and very wonderful, respected radio on Radio One. And I'm not saying I was well-respected, but I mean, I was working on very respectable stations and it just felt a lot scarier. And that's when I started to really wonder how people were seeing me and what their thoughts were. And it was just a very strange time. And I guess a lot of people go through this in their teens, but I was sort of infantilized to some extent because I was this kind of kid on TV And in my 20s, I went through like my teen years almost of trying to emulate other people, whether it be like I dyed my hair every color under the sun. It was red. It was black. It was white. I just wanted to not be me. I didn't feel cool enough, didn't feel smart enough, didn't feel like I was good enough at the job, didn't feel like I was doing anything well enough to be defined by it in a positive way. Yeah, I just kind of felt very discombobulated and not enough. Always, always felt like imposter syndrome just off the scale. I was just very negative about myself in every way, intellectually, emotionally, physically. I was just not happy being me, weirdly. And how did that manifest itself? In a lot of ways, but the main one, having a disordered relationship with my body and food for 10 years. And it's so strange because I even feel you know, nervous talking about it because I haven't. And I think I've got to the point, which is why I wanted to talk today, that I talk the talk and I love being honest, but I don't 100% walk the walk because I haven't gone there. You know, I've definitely talked about a big period of depression that I've had and I've talked about that prolifically and panic attacks, which was really scary to talk about because I still get them. So there's all sorts of weirdness going on with that when you're still experiencing them. But this one is a strange one because it's been like this sort of weird secret that I felt a little bit embarrassed about, a little bit ashamed of, a little bit worried. Like, I'm still worried now. Like, what are people going to think when I tell this story and share this side of myself? I have a weird worry, like I did with talking about the depression, that people won't hire me to work. Like, silly stigma that I still attach to all of these situations that I know loads of people are going through. But the main problem I had and this sort of weird new release that I invented for myself was to have bulimia. I had that for on off a good decade of my life. So the beginning of my 20s, it was quite intense and sort of ruled everything. And then in my later 20s, it was more like a bad habit I would kick into if something emotional was happening or if I fell out of control it would be my go-to thing but it wasn't as regular and another reason why I've been nervous to talk about it is you know I've experienced so many times how the press will jump on things I say and then take them out of context and use wild headlines and the one kind of thing I, I have to talk about is the reaction that I've had to that period of my life has been my 30s which have been all about health and looking after myself, and eating extremely well, and healing, and recovering, 
and being really on it with my health because I denied myself the pleasure of cooking and food for so long that it's now become my everything. So it's really important that that side of my story is also really communicated because it's something I'm so passionate about. And I know because I read a lot of articles about it, there are so many people out there, men and women, going through this situation with disordered eating, bulimia, and feeling like they'll never, ever get out of it. And I don't define myself by being a bulimic. I'm not. I, for the last eight years, have been very studious with food and very careful about how I eat and how I cook and how I talk about food. And I feel really good and recovered. I hope I'm not being naive by saying it, but I do feel like that. It was a period of my life, but I'm not in it anymore. It is the past, but it does signify a big chunk of my life where I failed at being me because I'm just me these days. So whatever anybody thinks or says, that's their issue. Back then, I felt I couldn't be me. It had to be something wildly different. And that became my little secret to contain it, I guess. That's such a beautiful way of putting something so difficult. And thank you so much for that. Because I know how much it will speak to so many people, myself included. I know people very close to me who have lived with that condition. And I think the reason it's so hard to talk about and the reason that there's still unfair stigma attached to it is because we're expected to be perfect and you're expected, particularly in the job that you had, to kind of have it all and to have it all without seeming to put effort into it. And Mm -hmm. so it feeds into this narrative that you have to be in control. And I think that one of the misunderstandings about disordered eating, bulimia, anorexia, is that it's about your physical presentation of the outside world. And actually, my understanding is it's a lot about control when you feel out of control. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I didn't recognize that until a lot later down the line. But for me, partly it was something that no one knew about me because I felt at times very overexposed. Partly that was, I take responsibility for that, but it was still the case. And also about control because I had this first chunk of my life, which was very normal and I was doing normal family things. And then the next chunk of it overnight switched up and was just bonkers at times. So it was a way of feeling like I was calling the shots and I was in control. And it's sad to look back and see that it was obviously the absolute opposite of that. I felt so out of control that it came to abusing my own body and it took quite a while physically to kind of move on from that, but mentally a very long time. I will still have unkind thoughts about myself on a physical level because there was an element of that in there as well. And that's something that I remedy by doing the opposite, eating a really lovely meal or doing some very gentle yoga. You know, I used to... I was never the sort of person that binged and then puked up after. I would eat relatively regular meals, but then still go and get rid of it all and have, it felt like a release. Like every worry, every problem, thought was just like gone. It was like a little bit of euphoria afterwards. Of course it wasn't. I want to be very clear about that. But at the time, the mental state I was in, it, it did feel like that. I was exercising, you know, like going running to the gym and like pounding my body. And now it's all about being gentle and being kind to myself and 
exercising when I feel like I want to and doing it so I'm energized rather than exhausted and eating so that I'm vibrant and energized to have energy for my family. And I also have shame attached to the fact that I purposefully hurt my own body when I'm so grateful for my health today. I can't tell you like absolutely the main thing I'm grateful for every day is I wake up and I'm here. I have a healthy body, like thank God. And to think that I damaged it on purpose, you know, I do have some shame attached to that. And I guess that's why I've also found it very difficult to even admit, like sometimes I feel like, did I make it all up? Like, did it really happen? Because I've never talked about it. You know, even to my close friends, I haven't really felt like that was a place I wanted to go to. And I'll go there. You know, I like being honest. I like putting it out on the table, but this one has felt, I don't even know why, just too spiky to deal with. Did anyone know when it was happening or did anyone suspect and try to talk to you about it? Not that I know of, bar my mum. And I think she'll probably be quite upset that I've talked about it, I think. And it's probably another reason I haven't. But I do think once I've explained to her my reasons why and the fact that she knows that I want to help and do good. So I think she'll be on board eventually. But I do think my honesty she'll find difficult because I know as a parent, it was a horrendous time for her. And she definitely started to suspect things. And then she confronted me on it. It was around Christmas. It was really late at night. And I really was being quite stroppy, early 20-something about it, denying it, not wanting to talk about it, not being very helpful at all. I think it took a lot of courage for my mum to do so. And it wasn't a very nice time. And I, and I know that she's beat herself up about it a little bit. I think she feels she should have done something or that she's somehow partly responsible, which is absolutely not, you know, it was nothing to do with my mum at all. But I think it probably was a very difficult time for her because how do you help someone in that situation until they're ready to help themselves? It's really hard. And I did have to naturally find my own way and get to a point where I knew that I just couldn't do it anymore. How did you get to that point? It was, you know, long, a long period of time. It was just little moments that built up to a realisation that I didn't want to do that anymore. And also I had met Jesse at this point and I wasn't regularly purging, but it would still be a fallback if things felt stressful. And I, at this point, then desperately wanted to have a baby. I was going out and drinking quite a lot, you know, like, nothing excessive, but like anyone in their 20s. And it was just a realisation of I need to start eating really well. I need to really not keep going out on the piss like I am. And again, it wasn't anything excessive at all, but I just thought that needs to change. And I need to just get into a new rhythm of life that is more fitting. So it was fateful that I had met my husband at this point. And I naturally felt like I wanted to just get back to being the real me because the real me in my teen years was the me I am now. Small life, quiet, reading books at home, loving my own company, cooking. And, you know, I used to bake a lot in my teens, being a homemaker, very simple pleasures. That was what I did throughout my teen years. And then in my twenties, through this need to feel like I had to be more exciting, more vivacious, you know, an, an exaggerated version of parts of me, 
I kind of just wasn't me at all. So I reached a point where that got boring and I wanted to just be me again. So for the last eight years, it's just been about being at home and enjoying that. I'm not feeling like I'm not having FOMO. I've never had FOMO in my life. Like I kind of probably had it in my 20s inauthentically, but I don't get FOMO. I don't want to be out. I want to be here with my family doing simple things. And I just gravitated back towards that. And with that, I had to shed a lot of layers and that particular illness was a big one of them. It sounds to me as well as if it was a rather beautiful journey from what you felt your body wasn't to what your body could do Mm. and how strong it could be and having babies and discovering more nurturing exercise. Mm -hmm. Massively. I started to honour it and to want to look after it. And very naively, I thought, I'll get pregnant straight away. You just naively think, yeah, just get pregnant straight away. And it didn't happen like that. It took a little while and really reinforced the fact that I needed to properly look after myself and be kind to myself. And that's not just in a physical and a practical sense. That's with your thoughts and how you talk about yourself, how you talk to yourself. And that's still what I battle with to this day. And I really, I think most women do. We're, we're so negative about ourselves. It was a shift at that point. And then getting pregnant with Rex, which was a beautiful moment, I really just let go of all of it. And I ate everything in sight. I didn't have any weird feelings toward food. It just went overnight. It then came back, like the feelings of self-hatred or self-loathing and weirdness about my body after birth, which I think is a vulnerable time for most women. But I didn't go back to the illness. I I knew I had to stick to a very practical way at looking at food and health to sustain my health for my own benefit and my newborn baby. And can I ask... A final question on this, which is, you have a young daughter now as well. Mm. And we've spoken in the past about how influential, incredible people like Bryony Gordon are on Instagram Mm. in terms of that overused phrase now, body positivity. But how much of an impact has that had on you? And how careful are you of the messages you, as a social media user and as a mother of a girl, put out there? Yes, it's something I think about a lot. Bryony's a great friend of mine and I adore her and her work is beautiful angel work, you know, that she's doing. And also I had a real seminal moment this year talking to Megan Jane Crabb, who is Body Posy Panda on Instagram. And I can't tell you how transformative that chat was for me. I just was just hanging off her every word and it's again, been another shift of consciousness for me where I'd realized how unkind I was still being about myself and how much I assumed everyone else was being unkind about me when that's never the case. We all know that. Everyone's worrying about their own shit in their own heads. So that one, I kind of went off on a beach holiday afterwards for a week. And usually I would like hate wearing a bikini and beat myself up about this and that. And I just didn't give a shit. And it was so wonderful. I am very careful because obviously I've got a stepdaughter who's a teenager as well, not to talk about food or in a, in a negative way, obviously in a positive way. Great. But bodies and, and food in a negative way, I am very careful to use positive language or just 
not even make it a thing. I don't really talk about it to either of my daughters at all. It's just, we just get on with it and have fun. And I make food a big celebration in our house. I don't know how I'll react when Honey is a teenager. I will just have to go with the flow of being a parent and see where it takes me because we never know what's going to happen and how things are going to play out. But I am very conscious to just make food a big celebration and for our bodies to be celebrated for being capable and strong and nimble and you know we're all very active and and then looking at social media I mean I am naturally a small person my dad's like this giant stringy bean pole and my mum's a tiny little miniature person and I am quite small so I'm not going to be out there posting pictures of me like embrace your bodies whatever it could be seen as patronizing or and I've got my own issues you know mentally and internally going on there so I just don't make a thing of it. I just post pictures of me as I am, as authentic as I can be, as real as I can be, whether that be dog tired with hummus smeared on my shirt from my children or actually looking a little bit glamorous going to work sometimes because I, you know, my life is a bit of everything. So all I can be is me. I don't think I'm putting out any particular message about bodies. I hope by me talking about it a bit more, I can open up a new conversation for me about how kind we are to ourselves and how we think about ourselves. And and I'm still on that journey. But yes, I think as long as we're always honest, then we can't go wrong. I can't be any different to who I am. And I'm not 100% like, yes, in love with my body, but I've made a lot of peace And to think of where I've come from, I've gone a very great distance away from that time. Thank you. Can I ask you how you feel after this conversation? Relieved in a sense. I think I was sort of dreading talking about it. But the thing I've learned over the years, especially with the book, with Happy, is that, you know, I was terrified to talk about this depressive episode I'd had I felt like an absolute freak having been through it and it was a painful time but the thing I've realized is once you've spoken about things they're not these ugly dark monsters locked in a cupboard anymore that can jump out and get you when you're least expecting it and the more honest I am and the more I put out there that is authentically me the less fear I have because I can't be anything else but me whether people react well to that or not that's their choice but I can only be me And by locking bits of me in the cupboard because they're not good enough, I'm ashamed of them, I'm embarrassed, I'm worried what people will think, makes them bigger, gives them a heavier quality, makes them louder when you're trying to sleep at night. So I do think that the more I talk about these subjects, the better. I will have to see, you know, how other people react, which no one knows, and also how the press will flourish these kind of stories but that I'm robust enough to deal with and I think you know worrying about what my mum might think because I do you know obviously care about her reaction to these things I think once she knows like all the work I do that there's goodwill and I want to essentially connect people and have a sense of community she'll be fine and that she knows that it's you know nothing to do with her or her parenting which I'm sure is an undercurrent worry. So yeah, I think as I approach 40, I'm just feeling like I'm shedding lots of stuff that doesn't serve me anymore, I guess. And I can just be me. And as I said, you know, if people 
like that or don't, that can't be my issue anymore. I can only be me and hopefully my stories, anecdotes will help other people. That's that's all I can hope for. Fern Cotton, I don't like it. I love it. I think your parents did a fantastic job and you don't like small talk, but you talk big and bold and brave. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on How to Fail. Oh, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.